I've been asked for years why I don't do a regular politics show. And the reason is very simply because I value your time. There's more news and analysis at your fingertips than you could ever possibly consume. But cutting through all the noise and making sense of it all is the tricky part. News is prioritized by powerful yet aloof interests who don't want you to see the big picture. But we know better. We know these times require the bigger picture. They require context for the relationships between society, inequality, and power. They require raw conversations with diverse voices and forward-thinking people. With help from some of my friends and you, we'll offer that much-needed presentation to the world. And to the world, we begin Power Report. Woo! Wow, that was an intro. Hello humans, welcome to Alameda County Jail. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, this is Dan from the internet, aka Dan from the web, and you heard the intro right. This is Power Report. That is the name of this project now. It is its own podcast. You will see uh, videos from it on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Dan from the internet. Um, it's a thing. Y'all have been asking for this thing. And um, I hope that it does justice to the folks who have been asking for this and what I feel like will make the most sense as a show. Um, and so because of that, there's gonna be a couple of different formats for this. Some episodes I'm gonna be interviewing people, some episodes I will um, sit down with a panel of uh, folks and we'll be talking about some really substantive stories and kind of just laughing and joking around. Um, the show is going to be serious, the show is going to be fun, the show is going to be proudly and unabashedly uh, from the left um, as much of a learning process while also as um, fierce of an advocate for the working class and for social justice as we can possibly be. And um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. So new episodes will come out, I think, semi-monthly. That means like twice a month on Sundays. Um, I like the idea of this competing against like Sunday morning talk shows, that kind of vibe. I think this is just going to be a much better thing. And um, I will let the podcast speak for itself. Now we'll go without saying that the nomination of Kamala Harris by the former Vice President Joe Biden, who is currently running to be president to defeat Donald Trump, hopefully, um, there's definitely a lot to be said about that. It's a historical moment. It potentially means that um, a woman of color for the first time in the United States in a country that has had a history of being pretty harsh to women of color might have the chance to lead the country. Um, but I think that it is definitely a bit of a cause for concern. Um, and that's a contrast from a lot of what we're seeing in the media right now of how to react to this. And so in order to really dissect how complicated of an issue this is of Kamala Harris being vice president and the real world ramifications that can have for the left um, in the United States and in the world more broadly, I knew there are very few people I would want to talk to about this other than... Kimberly Foster, I'm a writer and editor and I'm the head of For Harriet. It's a multi-platform digital community for black progressive women. She was incredibly gracious doing an interview with me, kind of talking about um, how we feel as black people about uh, doing round two of this again with Kamala Harris. 
um, and also some of our concerns that we have, but also the concerns that we have with the media coverage of her more broadly and um, what the left can really do forward, what our choices are in November and uh, what the stakes are. I think this is a nuanced conversation. I titled it the way I did for a reason. This is probably the best conversation um, we can put forward about Kamala Harris that I think covers most of the bases that one needs to understand in order to really get a sense of her. I'll return after it's over for some closing remarks. Thank you very much. I'm so honored that you would come on for this inaugural episode. Um, bearing with me with the tech issues before we started um, really getting going. And um, I've been following you on YouTube for a pretty like long while. Um, there were some pretty hot takes you had with like XXX Temptation. There were some strong things you said that were political that I agreed with. And they were like, yeah, this is a person who's like very multifaceted. They're speaking to things that. Um, I care about and I think are important that aren't really talked to that much talked about that much in culture. Um, and she does it from a really refreshing perspective of a black woman. And um, I'm it's not done really enough in the YouTube space. There are um, many like black women who are killing it on YouTube right now, but of course there could always be more. Um, so it's always been good to kind of see you rise and blossom. So again, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Right. So um uh, let's get into it. Um, we are gathered here today basically to discuss the um, coming of Kamala Harris, who has just been decided by Joe Biden to be the vice presidential pick um, for the 2020 last exit before hell world ticket, I guess. And um, he, Kamala Harris ran as a presidential candidate in this past Democratic race in 2020. Before that, she was a senator in California. Before that, she was an attorney general. There's a lot of stuff in that past, and I think we'll be able to kind of touch on a few of those things there. Of course, like we're not experts, and there's like research that I can try to like point you to. But um, th there's a reason why, like in a lot of other cases, the um, this moment where Kamala Harris is being chosen as the vice president and the Democratic Party kind of getting all of its ducks in the road to get this thing going. Um, it's uh, it's really bittersweet for me. I want to know if like that's something that's similar that you're feeling. I don't know if bittersweet is the, the word that I would use. Um, Kamala would not have been my pick, but I understand why people are excited. I personally, not super excited, but I understand the context. I understand the history. I get it. Yeah, and it's like, that's the, I want to, if I can, maybe start, um, not like on a, because it's positive note, but like there's things that I think are, I agree with that should be addressed. Like Joe Biden, we've got to be real. The, the whole idea of like a heartbeat away from the presidency has rarely been more real for a vice president than in this case. So you're looking at potentially the first uh, black woman to be president, the first woman of color to be president, the first South Asian woman to be president. Um, it would set a huge precedent. Um, it would um, symbolically in a country that has historically oppressed many of these groups um, show a sign of progress at the very least symbolically. Um, and, and like, you know, like I was, 
young-ish when Obama was elected. And as a black man who's like trying to do things like the book smarts kind of way, I even saw like a little bit of inspiration into it, even though like as I would get older and learn a little bit that Obama wasn't down with all the politics that I really cared about. So um, I guess like speaking to that, is there any sort of like feeling where based on your identity, you can kind of be or acknowledge the moment of Kamala Harris and that this is a really historic thing? I can absolutely acknowledge that this is historic. I can absolutely understand why so many women of color, black women, South Asian women are celebrating Kamala. Look, I get it. It feels good to see somebody who shares your identity winning, especially when you understand all of the structural obstacles that were in their way. I, like you mentioned, just I remember the crazy celebrations when Barack Obama was elected, like out in the streets. I was in college, people dancing on top of cars in the streets of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Like, I remember that. But I think at 31, I'm just less impressed by the politics of representation. I'm just much more deeply invested in policy. You know, like, I just want to know what your legislative agenda is going to be. And I'm just not sure what that's going to be when it comes to Biden-Harris. But I get it. I really do. Yeah, I totally do. And I'm also very sympathetic to the trauma of this administration. Um, there are unfortunately some people that um, I was semi-adjacent to on the left at a certain point who tried to spin Trump winning, not that they wanted um, him to win, obviously, but that it would be ultimately a good thing for the country um, because I don't know, in some like weird, warped, twisted way, it would mobilize progressives and mobilize the left to really build into a force. And like, y you can say something about like the rise of Bernie Sanders, the rise of Elizabeth Warren, and the rise of like more people getting more active and pushing past what the Democratic Party establishment is. That, that, that has nothing to do with like the pure chaos that the Trump administration has caused um, and the lasting ramifications that are going to be felt like ripple effects for years to come. And so I, I completely, to that extent, I sympathize with, okay, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, there are some strengths with Kamala Harris as a person, um, maybe as a leader, but even as like a legislator, there are those strengths. Um, but, and, and it would be not Trump, the option would be not Trump, I will be clear. But I say all that to preface, like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff I find about, like, I mean, I found a lot of stuff about Joe Biden problematic as hell. I still haven't forgotten about like the whole, um, Tara Reid case that kind of was, it was interesting how the Democratic Party kind of coalesced around Joe Biden and that when they had made a case about holding um, horrible men to account. I, I, I'm very wary of this same sort of coalescing around Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, forgetting the kinds of policies that they fought for and stood for during the Democratic primary. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think um, the the political calculation of let Donald Trump win and then that will inspire the masses to move um, much more left and then that will set us up for a you know radical leftist or a democratic socialist in in 2020 didn't pan out. I see the see people saying the same thing and I'm like, you guys, 
We tried that, right? Like, remember her in 2016? Tried that. It didn't pan out. It turns out there are many, many more people in the electorate who are moderates who just desire, no matter how nonsensical it might seem, for um, a reversion to quote-unquote normalcy, um, a reversion to the, you know, halcyon days of the the Obama-Biden era, right? Like, like that, unfortunately, is, is most of the people who show up to vote. So, I don't know. I, I think um, we're in a really tough spot as progressives, but I do know that no matter what my personal feelings about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are, I do not want four more years of Trump-Pence. And so I am willing to say that I will absolutely vote for Joe Biden in November, and I will encourage anybody who I have access to to do the same. And yeah, that's hard. It's hard. Yes, it's yes. hard, and it's a hard... It's a hard thing to reconcile, but this is just where we are. Yes, and um, I, again, like that this would be a historic moment. I, I admire that aspect of it. And Trump is really bad, and they would even like a return to the pre twenty sixteen ish is better than this. This is so bad. I haven't even gone to the detention centers and um, the handling of COVID. Like even Mitt Romney wouldn't have screwed this up this badly. Like it's it's absolutely have to has to be said for that i think that's the responsible opinion to have but i really want to kind of use this opportunity to get into the specific like policy issues i have with kamala harris if you like don't mind like we sort of see with that so like yeah. for me i think the biggest issue of our like, one of the biggest issues of our time besides climate change is medicare for all like everyone needs health insurance it's ridiculous that you're Health insurance, if you even do have it, if it's good and you're privileged in that sense, um, it's tied to your employer. And so if for some reason you lose your job, let's say, because there's lockdowns and a pandemic that's being handled very poorly by the president, you lose your health insurance and there's a health scare. There's, there's, this is such a no-brainer thing. And for a moment in the beginning of the primaries, I thought Kamala Harris was going to jump under the Medicare for All bandwagon because I think... Bernie Sanders and a couple of more other progressive senators proposed it, and then Kamala Harris signed on to it. Actually, it might have been Kamala Harris and Bernie proposing it together with Ed Markey in the Senate, if I remember correctly. But um, they put put it forward. But you know, Bernie, as usual, is very staunchly like Medicare for all, give people as much as possible. Whereas Kamala Harris kind of sort of adapted it to saying. Well, we wouldn't get private get rid of private insurance in all cases. Actually, employer-based care is all right or fine in some aspects. It was like a watering down that she didn't seem to really kind of, um, you know, like make amends for it throughout the rest of the campaign. Yeah, I mean, I think the tricky thing about both um, Joe Biden and and Kamala Harris is you don't really know what they actually believe. You don't really know what they actually stand for because their policy positions shift so much. They are so, um, they're maybe too attuned to public opinion, like maybe paying too much attention to polling. And so there's not any real like firm ideological commitments evidenced in in what they uh, put forth as their legislative agenda. So yeah, I, I was excited that at the beginning of 
the um, of her campaign because I thought that she was going to be a little bit more left. She has voted uh, pretty progressively in the Senate, but we see that she walked that stuff back when she didn't when she realized that she wasn't going to be able to gain a lot of traction in the Sanders Warren lane. She decided to pivot and. Okay, right? Like, take your, you know, don't throw away your shot. Like, you know, get in where you fit in. But as a voter with very strong ideological commitments, that concerns me. Yeah. And like, this is the Democratic primary is the time for like the most engaged voters to really like shop around for candidates and like really figure out what they want to. And like, we're, we're both very engaged people with this for sure. Um, and I, I don't, I'm not in the camp of, thinking that you know candidates need to be consistent on all things or they need to be litmus test on certain issues i think candidates should be or politicians in general i think this could also apply to people should really stand to their convictions like defend what they're talking about try to like make sense of what they're talking about um and if you decide that you change your opinion or you learn some other perspective admit that come talk about that and at least defend that but don't try to like waffle around it thinking you can say one thing and win some people over and act as though those other people won't follow up to me that's like with all these things one of the main arguments is oh you're looking at kamala harris's past record these are different things that are not under her control but almost more than i notice these things that medicare for all is a policy issue i also pick up patterns in how you respond to criticism because in the best of times and the worst of times a president's going to be criticized by their party sometimes and by everyone else and like by the republican party they're going to be they're at their death knell right now they're going to be really really vicious at this point in my opinion um and i'm it's already really bad like again i was talking before like i can't believe birtherism is already back but like it's going to get really ugly with kamala harris and joe biden against donald trump and whatever's that's happening but um I, a p- politician needs to be able to handle criticism and especially legitimate criticism from people who are mostly on your side and work with that, respond to that. I think AOC is a good example. Um, I think there were times when Barack Obama was a good example. There were a couple times when Hillary did okay, Bernie did all right sometimes. Like, But a, a big thing I noticed with Kamala Harris is that there would be mistakes that would be pointed out by people to her side or maybe a little bit to her left. There were good good faith arguments, I felt. And instead of dodging them, she would either dodge them or the pattern would emerge where she would kind of dig in her heels and really kind of argue that she was right in the things that you feel strongly she's wrong about. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that... I think this is this is rough because yes, we want politicians to be receptive to criticism and I do think that we should embrace people who change their minds when they have uh, a new set of facts when they um, are exposed to alternative viewpoints that they find compelling. I don't necessarily know if if um, just, flip-flopping or waffling whenever you think that the polling is not on your side is the like like I I think that there's like a a tough balance to strike here because especially because of how, how polarized our political landscape is at this time like any democrat you're going to be challenged like any 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 position that you take you're going to have to fight for and I do want to know that when when it 
comes time to fight that you are actually going to fight like you are that you are not just going to I don't know, uh, take a month long break in the middle of a <laughs> in the middle of a deadly pandemic, right? Like I, I want to know that that you have the best interests of the people, uh, no matter what the other side is gonna do, because we know that they're gonna be vicious. Yeah. Um I, uh, front of the show, Pete Buttigieg, actually had this really good comment, I'm kidding, but he had this really good um, remark, one of the few things that he said that wasn't just like a full-on platitude, that was like, look, they're going to call Bernie Sanders a socialist, they're going to call Joe Biden a socialist, they're going to call Pete Buttigieg a socialist. You just got to just like roll with what you're going to do and listen to legitimate criticism, but like don't listen to bad faith actors. That's why I tried to make that kind of difference. So I 100% agree with you there. Um, that that's just you know we're, we're this is the uh, starting dish of things with Kamala Harris. Um, maybe we could dive into the prosecutorial records because um, she was a prosecutor, I believe, before she was attorney general, right? And um, there are some problematic things there. I've, what are some of the things that for you kind of rub you the wrong way the most from that? You know, I remember there was a. There was um, an article in the New York Times about a man who was either sentenced to life in prison, or I don't know if they have the death penalty in California, but I believe he was sentenced to either life in prison or an extended sentence where there this was all of the case. Right? I'm sorry. I believe this is um, his last name was Cooper. Yes. Yes. And yes. there was there was so much evidence that corroborated him that basically said that he did not commit this crime and all that was necessary was for prosecutors to consider this evidence. Um, and while Kamala was, I believe she was attorney general and they just refused to consider the evidence, right? And so this New York Times article comes out and the reporters for the New York Times reach out to now Senator Harris and she says, oh yeah, okay, yeah, somebody should do something about that. And it's like, you were the, you were the somebody. And I, I just have a really, there are so many, you know, I follow um, a reporter named Emily Bazelon, who was who has gone really deep into Kamala Harris's record as um, DA in San Francisco and as attorney general. And it's like there are so many instances, you know, prosecutors have lots of discretion where they just choose not to do things that could free potentially um, likely, probably um, innocent people. I I have a problem with allowing for that kind of record. And then Kamala has now made a leftward shift. But then we are supposed to pretend like that record is not there. That really bothers me. And it, and it also bothers me that we know she's going to use her record as a prosecutor in the general, right? Like, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to give people incentives to be right and malicious and punitive for a huge chunk of their career and then make a little shift at the end and then all is forgiven. I feel like we've been allowing we've been allowing politicians, especially in the Democratic Party, to do that for too long. And I just think it's it's time for that to be over. But again, I just realized this is the option. So yeah, yeah, you're damn radical. Why, why, why would you want anything like that? An accountable Democratic Party? Come on. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 sad that they boxed us in in this way. But yeah, that's that's where we are.
Yeah, um, my my Kamala Harris like um, what was it, like special order, let's say, is as I think from California. So I'm like a pretty fairly native California. I've at least adopted this place my home just as much as every transplant. And um, the thing she did while she was attorney general is, or, I'm pretty sure it was because it had ramifications throughout the entire state. Was she had a um, policy where she wanted to get cut down on truancy. The issue with students not showing up for classes, you know, the early childhood development's important, et cetera. Things we all pretty much agree with. The result of this, though, was overly punitive because instead of looking at certain issues as to why these kids aren't coming to school, um, some of these kids unfortunately are like in poverty and they're like doing housework for the family while their like parents are working and there's like too much going on. Uh, other kids, like, it's like transportation issues, like the parents just like out of the household and like not doing good things. Like there's, it's a complicated issue. You don't solve that problem by jailing the parents or like putting the parents through the criminal justice system where they have to deal with bail and court dates and all these other traps that get them further locked in, um, make it harder for them to get that job that they need for their health care if they're lucky enough to have that so they don't fall further down into poverty and get more issues. It's like, you're, I don't get how some of the woke folks who are out there can reconcile that with Kamala Harris's record. And then, again, the pattern I kind of put to attention that really makes, like, really kind of bothers me the most is that when this is brought up, she defends what she did. She said, look, some have criticized it as being overly punitive, but over, overall we got, we solved the truancy problem, the truancy rate is better, and um, she just like, she, I wish, again, you have your wishful thinking that's really logical about um, how the Democratic Party should be more accountable to people and how they should listen more. But I think, yeah, politicians more broadly should be able to say, yeah, I messed up. There's no reason that I should have put women of color through the carceral system on my path to being the first woman of color in the White House. Like, there's there's something within me that has to say, hey, that wasn't cool, that wasn't right. Um, maybe there's something I can do about all the people who are locked up for petty marijuana offenses or drug offenses instead of laughing about smoking weed on the breakfast club and um, kind of like joking about that while you have this record of people who are in prison. I mean, like, there's some people like Candace Owens and like we don't need to get into that, right? But like there's some people who like, okay, maybe you're just so detached from the black experience or you're so detached from knowing people whose lives have been ruined by this stuff. And, and like, how can you do that as a politician, as trailblazing as you are, and sort of hide in that? Again, it shows a pattern of behavior that makes me concerned about how accountable she would be were she to govern. And, and again, the sad thing is, I, I still advocate for her to govern instead. It's, it's, it's horrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I think, I think something else that I've really had to make peace with is that there are many, many people who are supportive of Kamala Harris and the kind of punitive measures that she's taken throughout her career as a prosecutor. So um, 
there are many, many um, black folks who are small C conservative, many, many people of color who are small C conservative. They're not, they might have an issue with um, mass incarceration, like the, the broad idea. But when you talk to them about arresting people because their children were truant, they're so, well, they need consequences. You can't, you, you gotta have consequences. Or if we talk about, um, incarcerating people for an unduly long sentence, right? Well, you know, you shouldn't have been, you shouldn't have been committing crimes, right? So, so I think that that is what Biden-Harris, that is what they are banking on, that there are many, many people who fundamentally believe in this idea of law and order, no matter who gets harmed. Yeah, like, I, I think there's a larger conversation that it almost looked like with the beginning of the George Floyd demonstrations that we may were maybe we're about to have about there's abolish the, the police versus defund the police but there's also the criminal justice system do we incarcerate the cops that killed brianna taylor or do we rehabilitate the cops that killed brianna taylor like that's a big discussion that i think is happening um within these like leftist center spaces as well um i don't think it's permeating anything outside of that honestly throughout the um, rest of the culture as that we've had a couple months pass in this continuing sort of, I guess, like rekindling of the broader Black Lives Matter movement. But um, it, it, it doesn't seem like Kamala Harris would be the strongest ally in those things. Again, it seems like Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris. Usually a vice presidential pick is a, a dumb electoral strategy. Like I'll pick someone from Ohio because it's a purple state and maybe I'll get it to toss because it's home court advantage. Like sometimes there's those dumb reasons. And then sometimes you think that they will be able to shield you from certain weak spots in your criticism. So like Obama picked Biden because like Obama couldn't go all in and pick like a Latina or something like that at that point in American history. It just would have like I, the racism would have been too much. I know it's like kind of speculating to say that, but I think we all kind of know racism would have been too much. So, like picking Joe Biden, picking like, okay, this is a very standard like white male politician who's democratic he's liked in the party this should calm you down about the fact that i'm this like smooth talking junior um senator from chicago who's like has this interesting story and would definitely be like a color change for um america more broadly on the world stage so i i understand the weird spot that a lot of these politicians have because in order to rise up into these positions you have to you can't go too far you can't maybe like show all your true colors like there's a joke of obama can't grow an afro in office like that'll freak too many people out right but um at the same time there are many so so many of your principles that you don't have to give up just because you're on the path to success yeah well you know the thing is, it's like, about that, I don't know, right? Like, people have said to me in defense of Kamala Harris, we are in now a landscape where progressive Black women, progressive women of color, like a Cori Bush, like an Ilan Omar or Rashida Tlaib or an AOC, where they are able to win election with those leftist politics. But Kamala Harris has been doing this for a long time, a couple of decades. And that was not true two decades ago. Like, I I'm willing to concede that, that, right? Like, that she has done what she needed to do to get to where she is. I'm not sure if I 
this is again hard, right? Because I understand the reality of what it means to be a black woman. I understand that just by being a woman or being a person of color, people view you as more left than you are. There's lots of there's lots of data around that. Um, conservatives viewed Barack Obama as like a, a radical leftist when in reality he was very much a centrist, sometimes center right, right? Because our our bodies are just seen as radical. I get it. I understand. There's just, there's just the thing, there's just things that is it worth it, right? Like is, is furthering your career worth sacrificing the lives of so many incarcerated people? Like, I don't, I don't know. It's hard. It, it's, it's really hard. And like, not everyone makes the right decision in life. But um, if you're going to run for office, we get to talk about those decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and again, that's why I want to have you on because you have the duality of like being um further to the left of Kamala Harris but also you have the understanding of like being a black woman that there are a lot of people on the internet that like criticize Kamala Harris and sometimes they go too far or they misstep in certain ways or they use certain like tropes or they buy into almost just as racist terminology that um it's like the right is using and so like it's it's a delicate space to walk because of the time we're in. Like, this is really, um, Nina Turner said something about, like, being served a plate of shit. And, like, that was a really strong kind of, like, turn of phrase to this. But, like, this is the worst of worst situations. We are really picking the lesser of two evils. And there's, like, no equivocating with, like, how this time the choice is so stark and so valid um, in the election that it's, like, you, you, you can't equivocate and do any stuff like that. Like, you really have to get serious. I even was like, I was like definitely like a Bernie side kind of person. And I felt like, okay, I live in California. I live in a deeply blue district. It's not going to change. I'm going to vote for the Green Party so they can get more resources on a federal level. And up until maybe last month, I had that opinion still. And then I saw everything that like Trump is. Um, doing with the postal service and making it hard for like vote by mail to happen. And I'm like, yo, I've been bragging about California having vote by mail forever. Like, look at you simps, like standing in line at the voting booth. Like I, I should be making a fun about that because they cut voting in um, communities of color the hardest. But I would always like walk in like, like smooth because I fill out my ballot like days earlier, put it in the little envelope and drop it off right there. It would still get counted on the day of and like everything would go super smoothly. And the voting experience was nice for me. And you don't have to interact with people, which all of a sudden became a really important thing during COVID. And so if you're taking away the fucking mailboxes that people are going to put their ballots in and just like putting them in trucks right before it's happening at the same time, the Trump appointed huge Trump funder um, guy, his name's forgetting me right now, but I'm just like angry. Um, he's appointed to be the postmaster general, and he's making the post office cut in ways they've never done before. They're not delivering all the mail they used to, which is something they've done since the Ben Franklin days. The postal service is older than America, and the Trump people are willing to gut it because that's how much they're clinging on to power right now. And so, like, yeah. right now it is serious. Like, it, it is... It, it, unfortunately, yes, I will be voting for... Kamala Harris and Joe Biden because like what if my vote gets counted and someone else who tries to vote doesn't that's now a reality I have to think about that I didn't think I had to think about living in an extremely blue district in California but like that's how serious this is 
Yeah, I think um, we're just living in a really, really precarious time at this point. Um, every, you know, like this is the cliche, like every vote matters and, you know, but we are at the point where every vote matters. I mean, you know, I look back to 2016 and how thin, you know, Trump loves to brag like 303 to 216 or whatever, you know, like whatever it was. But in reality, I have boat flags. Yeah. And, you know, in reality, we're talking about 70,000 votes, right? Like really, really small margins. So, yeah, I think we should be really, really cognizant of the fact that, you know, especially when we're talking about voting by mail and then we have all of this, the, uh, the extra stuff that comes when you vote by mail of matching signatures and rejecting ballots for all kinds of reasons. It's going to be you know, I think it's going to be closer than a, than a lot of people think. I think people think that, oh, 200,000 people are going to die, so it's going to be, you know, should be easy. I don't think so. I think this is still going to be a really, really close election. I, I, we could do like a whole several hours on the whole desensitization of folks with the ridiculous numbers. Like, I thought, like, maybe semi-morbidly, but I thought back in April, once we start getting like 9-11 a day numbers, they'll start turning. And now it's just like, it, we're not like 3,000 deaths per day, but we were at that. We could easily get at that in the fall. And right now when we're all like kind of numb to it, it's still like 800 deaths a day, 1,000 deaths per day. Like, and yeah, people are just pricing it in right now. Like it's, oh my God, <laughs> why are we in this situation? Yeah. I mean, I know why, but like it's, it makes the Kamala Harris, Joe Biden thing that much harder. Um, what is, have there been any particular takes in the media that have, maybe like from the Republican side, like we, there's the Democratic cringe stuff, but like from the Republican side, like that have really annoyed you about Kamala Harris, just like on a personal level? You know, I am critical of the way that I think Kamala has maneuvered throughout her career. But I don't want, I don't want the Republicans to talk about like her being overly ambitious or something. Like, like that's why, so this, yes, this is a double standard because when I am talking about the way that Kamala has maneuvered in her career, I am talking about the ways that vulnerable people have been affected when the right is talking about the way that Kamala has maneuvered throughout her career, they are talking about racism and sexism. It's not about the people that she's harmed because they don't care about harm. It is about a, 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 a black and South Asian woman doing what she needed to do to advance herself in this very, very white, very rich arena of federal politics. That is what upsets them. It upsets them that she has so much power. I understand that, that the basis of our critiques are not the same. And so I, now that puts me in the position as a black progressive woman of being like, that's, you're being racist, right? Like this, this is sexism, right? Like this is not about policy. This is not about uh, the stances that she's taken or her ideological commitments. This is about racism and sexism um, and your aversion to quote unquote identity politics. And so now I have to call that out and defend Kamala. I think uh, Derricka Purnell wrote a really great article for The Guardian about the kind of bind that progressive women are in when it comes to Kamala Harris, because we, ha we have to defend her against the racism and the sexism because that stuff trickles down. I 100% I agree with you. Like that's, 
another aspect of why Trump super importantly needs to go now is because he has allowed for four years, like, racism never <laughs> disappeared or dissipated as much as Ben Shapiro would love to believe it has. It, if anything, there's just been, like, someone trying to, like, plug their finger in the, like, dam that's currently about to crack of, like, racism and trying to tamp it down. And then Trump just burst through all that and let the racists run free until the anti-racists started, like, really branding themselves and getting onto their own and statues started falling. And now you're seeing, like, a little bit of a pushback in the um, East Coast sort of, like, opinion article sort of world where the idea of anti-racism as opposed to post-racism is a factor because Donald Trump has caused this festering environment of racism and sexism. That's nothing to say of like the sexism. And even though like he's completely survived the Me Too era, like everyone says cancel culture this, cancel culture that, Trump is chilling. <laughs> and, and a lot of other these abusive motherfuckers are chilling too. But like that's beside the point. Like he has allowed this stuff to fester. And unfortunately, Kamala Harris is going to have to bear a lot of the brunt of it. And we as progressives and I'm talking about like people of color who for some reason like black people or even Indian folks who are sharing this like oh she's not really Indian or she's not really black stuff like don't don't let them divide us like that we can't we, we got to see this for what this really is and have these difficult to have and nuanced conversations that require like um a lot of research and thinking. Like, I admire how you can sort of pull these articles out of thin air. I, my, my brain can't do that, but it's really respectable of you. But like, reading a lot of different people's opinions and um, reporting, real reporting about this stuff, in order to have a nuanced conversation of there's a difference between racism and sexism towards like Kamala Harris's efforts to advance her career. But you can also look at what she did in her career and how she responds to it as an indicator for how she might behave based on real policy choices that are tangible that we can point to. Um, and that's where the nuance is at. Again, like, I'm so starstruck that we're having this conversation. Um, so, yeah, that was a really annoying thing for Republicans to have done. Most of the progressive stuff, I don't know, how, how are you with the KI folks on Twitter? How, how is that relationship? Um, so K Hive, the K Hive is not progressive, right? Like, like those are like small C conservative black people generally who would stand Kamala. But I just think that this idea of like having political stance is so stupid. I think that the K Hive in particular is like, you know, I'm like the queen of nuance. I hate this, but like I understand that because Kamala um, has the identity markers that she has that she is going to be subject to a particular kind of malice, a particular kind of nastiness. So on that hand, I understand why the people who support her or who want her to thrive in this political space, why they would try to rally around her. But I think that standing a politician is the dumbest stuff. Like, are you freaking kidding me? If we are talking about 
holding these people accountable, right? If we are talking about having a, a quote unquote ruling class, having a political class that actually cares about how we feel, the way to get there is not by trying to insulate them from every single criticism. Because what happens if you are a member of the K-Hive and Kamala does something that you don't like, right? Like, does that mean that you you have to stop being in the K-Hive? Does that mean that you're actually gonna speak to it? Like, no, like we we want people who ostensibly work for us to understand that you're just not, you're not gonna get a pass. like. It really bothers me because, again, I feel like we've learned nothing from the Obama-Biden years about creating, like, propping these people up as celebrities, right? Like, we get nothing. They, they will give us nothing and, like, tell us to be grateful for it. That's not the position that we want to be in. Yes, if I weren't freaking out about, like, the sound quality, I would be, like, snapping my fingers in applause, like, yes, go on, go on. Um and like, uh, I, I appreciate the nuance, but I wish there was like a mode of video stuff, almost like the new feature on Twitter where you can restrict the type of people who can respond to your tweets, where you could just be like, okay, no filter, here's the K-Hive things. Cause I have some no filter K-Hive stuff that I'm gonna refrain from saying because I'm not gonna nuke myself on my first proper episode. But um, th th the abuse towards um, people who aren't black are black especially people who are black and identify in the lgbtq community like the the abuse is fucking ridiculous like and i've been very wary and careful of like the bernie bro narrative um acknowledging like certain toxicity in um bernie's political faction while also saying there's a lot of toxicity in most of the major like big political factions there are some toxic warren folks there are some toxic Kamala folks and there weren't toxic booker people or toxic like uh, Klobuchar people because there are very few of those people. I mean, like Yang Gang was also its own like separate ugh, thing. Um, like I love sixty percent of them, but like th there was a lot of. I don't like to make that much about any particular candidate's thing because I don't think K Hive has anything to do with Kamala Harris, nor is it at all representative of her as a politician. I want to make that clear, but um, I, I do think there is an interesting double standard on like who's like political fandoms get seen in a good light versus who's don't so my the criticism i dislike the most was a daily beast article i forget who wrote it but someone shared a tweet that was just like a side by side of one was bro no bernie's like toxic sexist bernie bros and like how he's not dealing with them or some paraphrasing like that and then this one was like kamala harris Kamala Harris is VP and we have no choice but to stand. It's like, it was written by the same person. And I don't take Daily Beast or any of these like rags seriously as far as their opinion goes. Their reporting's like decent at best, but like, um, it, I, I, I don't get how people lose their fucking minds. Like they, they make political cults. And I love how you pointed that out because it is one of the most problematic and truly the most toxic thing I think about our political culture right now. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, okay, so I'll just do some like rapid fire things because we do the prosecutorial records like ugh, got us going. Um, she generally, Kamala Harris has that one quote where she generally felt that Israel met um, human rights standards overall. Um, is a really decent like size supporter to APAC. Like there def there's definitely room as a politician to be a little bit more adversarial. It's definitely difficult because the moment you don't side along with APAC, there's like a whole 
cottage industry of conservatives willing to call you anti-Semitic, like Ilhan Omar um, has been really brave, I think, in a lot of the um, pushback she's gotten for generally, I think, being on the right side of things and also admitting when she may have gone too far or like when something she said could have been misinterpreted in the wrong way. So like that's a props to Ilhan for that. But um, Kamala Harris, I believe, voted for a resolution to celebrate Israel's occupation of Jerusalem. Like that seems a little, uh, I, I don't like those kinds of things. Um, back to the attorney general stuff. There was a case where um, as attorney general, there was a trans woman in a California state prison who was trying to get gender reassignment surgery as like covered in the things you would get for um, medical treatment in um, prison. And th that's always controversial because like cosmetic versus not. But I I'll just say what I've heard from the trans community and trans friends I know that like gender dysphoria um, is a motherfucker. And if you can solve those um, like feelings and conflicting like emotions that you're having in a physical way and that helps you with your mental health, then I think it is really crucial. I think it is really important. Um, but Kamala Harris basically decided to address the problem by employing an expert who was one of these like being transgender as a mental illness type people who never had any intention of looking at it objectively and basically just wanted to rubber stamp saying, no, we don't, we're not going to hear out your humanity in this case. We're not going to solve in this like any sort of issue. We're just going to rubber stand it, rubber stamp it, cover our asses and leave you to deal with whatever hell you're dealing with in prison. Um, there's the stuff where Steve Mnuchin, who's the current Treasury Secretary, who believes that $600, I mean, $1,200 is enough stretch liquidity to last Americans 10 weeks, coming up on 20 weeks at this point. Um, yeah, his bank was responsible, One West Bank was responsible for a bunch of foreclosures during the financial crisis, which means people were kicked out of their homes wrongfully in many cases because of the wrongdoing of these banks. And Kamala Harris just decided to look the other way when it was time to potentially prosecute Steve Mnuchin and kind of really hasn't spoken to that and has generally dodged questions. So, like, I have to advocate for this woman and the old, creepy old man that she is running with to be president because Donald Trump is way more toxic. But this is unreal. Yeah. borderline unacceptable in any other circumstance for me. Yeah, I think it is unacceptable in any other circumstance. And that's why voters rejected her in the primary, right? Like, like, um, as you know, a VP, like it doesn't really, I, I guess they're voting on the fact that like, people don't really care. Um, but yeah, I, it's tough. And I think the other, you know, thing that we, we haven't really talked about is, is Joe Biden is not going to run for two terms. Um, he, he's not going to make it right. So, so Kamala Harris being the vice president at this point makes her the heir apparent for the presidency. Like that concerns me. And so are we ever going to come back around in four years to having real discussions about Kamala's really problematic prosecutorial, prosecutorial history? Probably not. Right. We're, we're going to have four more years and allow her to disassociate from it's like, okay. And, and so we're, we're going to be stuck in this cycle for, eight more, 12 more years. Like, I, I don't, that makes me concerned. Yeah. That makes me worried. Yeah. Like we, we talked a little bit earlier about 
how there's a historical aspect to Kamala Harris being kind of, yeah, that heir apparent heartbeat away from the presidency kind of person. But that doesn't totally make up for Joe, like, that doesn't make up for the way that you're right. I think Democrats are likely to, if, if Kamala Harris does end up being the president or is likely to be the president, we end up getting this race of, oh, well, look at Kamala Harris. She inherited a disaster. Joe Biden inherited a disaster. And they did all this stuff and they're trying their best. And you have to work with other people when they get on the other side of the aisle and they're not willing to work with us. So we're just doing the best we can. And so that's why, A, I'm a really big supporter of like being Mr. Down Ballot. Like vote, do the thing at the top. It's going to be annoying, whatever. But make sure you like vote for like the hardest fucking left people who are running for like your school board, your treasurer, like your city council, your city commissioner, like anything like that. But also there are some people who are trying to placate the left and saying, okay, listen, we're gonna unite and uh, make sure we get rid of Trump in November and then day one, we'll make sure to fight back. Well. Sure, right? Like some of us have this, we had this conversation, like you said, it's deja vu from the 2012 election. Like we probably weren't gonna go for Romney. Romney looked pretty bad, but can you listen to our stuff with Obama? And we were told the same thing then. Look, Obama's bad and we know that's things, but we promise we'll continue not listening to you if you just vote for us again. And they tried the same thing with Hillary Clinton and it just didn't work for a broad number of people. And so like, I, I'm also very much worried that we're just like not going to learn the lessons from this moment. Um, and yeah, we're going to, I, I hope my little optimistic thing is yes, the left is broadly stronger and leftist media is broadly stronger now. Um, so I think there will be more voices um, who are remembering these things and keeping a close eye on Kamala Harris. I know to the extent that I'm doing this in a hopeful Kamala Harris like administration or whatever, then I will be keeping a close eye on this stuff. And hopefully we can just be at least loud. We can be a, be a loud squeaky wheel that says, hey, we haven't forgotten some of the stuff and we want to make sure that at least going forward, you don't do anything like that ever again, that you at least make up for your past. Because Kamala Harris isn't like, beyond repair that's just not the way i believe in things but she's definitely got a lot of work to do sure i think that if you know kamala when she becomes the you know presumptive democratic presidential nominee in four years that if she comes back to the table and says wow i made some mistakes or you know here's what we can do to repair some of the harm that policies that I, you know, have endorsed as cause, like I'm for that. Like that's actually what we want. But I just need some, you know, um, not to use the buzzword, but I need some like affirmative action. I need you to take some affirmative steps toward making amends politically. And uh, we just haven't seen that yet. Yeah, maybe we can move from um, prosecutor Harris to restorative justice, and maybe like meet in the middle with how these needs can be met. Um, we wanted to write down, I know we're a little bit short on time. I want to thank you very much for joining me. But I always like to end these things with something that's a little bit kind of funny or humorous. Um, and I have a little bit of a dark sense of humor, so we'll go with that. Um, uh, one thing I kind of touched on in the beginning was this Breakfast Club interview that Kamala Harris had, where um, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, friend of the show, not quite. If we're going to talk about toxic fandoms, that's another one. But um, 
Tulsi Gabbard during a Democratic debate was pointing out how Kamala Harris laughed about um, carefully, casually, only once or twice smoking marijuana on The Breakfast Club, um, that show. Meanwhile, she was responsible for a bunch of people getting arrested for nonviolent drug offenses in California and being incarcerated and didn't really do anything to um, hasten those sentences, lessen those sentences, and hasn't really apologized for that. During that debate moment, she did more of this like flip-flopping, dodging, not really apologizing for that thing. And so the interesting aspect of that, which um, didn't get reported nearly as enough as it should have, was... Kamala Harris said that, like, yeah, of course I've smoked marijuana before. Like, and yes, I did inhale. Like, my health, half my family's from Jamaica. Are you kidding me? Like, Kamala Harris was trying to do the politician front thing on The Breakfast Club, saying, like, yes, of course, I know marijuana, which was not a very good thing to hear from Donald Harris, who is Kamala Harris's dad, who happened to pen a statement to Jamaica Global Online around the time. This was um, The Breakfast Club interview, so this was, like, February of last year. Um, saying, and I quote, my dear departed grandmothers whose extraordinary legacy I described in their recent essay on this website, as well as my deceased parents, must be turning in their grave right now to see their family's name, reputation, and proud Jamaican identity being connected in any way, jokingly or not, with the fraudulent stereotype of a pot-smoking joy seeker and in the pursuit of identity politics. Speaking for myself and my immediate Jamaican family, we wish to categorically dissociate ourselves from this travesty. End quote. It's crazy. I think Kamala and her father actually might have some some tension. I feel like I've read that somewhere. Like they're not like completely politically aligned. Um, but yeah, like Donald is not. He's he doesn't want to be associated with the shenanigans, and I don't blame him. Yeah, that's totally fair. Like I think um, I'm on the side of politics is really serious and if you're responsible about it and you do your best it's good but like it can't be draining you'll burn out too much like have a little fun like everything in moderation including moderation obviously but like i i, I don't care if kamala harris or obama smokes weed especially when we know like all the stuff the previous presidents did and like how they're like alcoholics anonymous graduates and previous coke benders like I'm, again i'm not here to judge anyone but let's look at both of these types of cases equally Especially yeah. when I would argue that marijuana is way less harmful than like the coke. Yeah, I, I don't thing. really care about people smoking weed. I do care about hypocrisy. Like that's that's like the the issue, right? Like if you have a history of incarcerating people for possession or for use, and then you are laughing about it, that you know people are going to get you for that. Yeah, that's I I, I totally get, it and it's totally fair. Last question, when you run in for office, come on, the people want it. I don't, nobody wants that. <laughs> nobody wants that. I don't want it. Like, absolutely not. No. no. No, no, same. There are a lot of people who are like, oh, you're really into politics. You should really get into politics. And there are some times where I'm so ashamed of politicians that I'm like, fucking put me in, coach. Like, let me do it. But like, I, I don't want any of the attention, as I say to the camera. Um, I don't want any of, I, I don't. It's a lot of scrutiny and it's a lot of responsibility. And if I were thrown in that position, I would really take that responsibility and scrutiny seriously. But also there's just so much bullshit and there's just complete another bullshit that you can't really avoid from being a politician, even if you have the best intentions at heart. Like they, 
even AOC, like not perfect, not a hero. I don't like absolutely stand, but like they went through, oh, she has this much in her bank account, but she says she's poor. Like, oh, she has a boyfriend who does the, like literally, I don't want my life to be like that. I'm not interested in that. I don't think people deserve that. Totally agree. I think that my time and my energy is much better spent supporting progressive candidates. It's much better spent supporting activists and organizers, but actually being a politician is a no. Yes, um, we all have wonderful talents in this world. Um, some of us are like content queens, such as yourself, um, and everyone should check out For Harriet on YouTube. I, I love what's on there. Even if you're not a black woman, it's still very, I, I like getting perspectives from just like a range of people and it helps when those people have broader backgrounds. And so I learned things. Um, my mom also likes the channel very much. I just showed her it and she loves it and loves your hair, by the way. And um, yeah, it's check out your Twitter handle. It's Kimberly and Foster, is it? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, check it out on Twitter, follow and thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Kimberly Nicole Foster, um, she is wonderful. Check out her YouTube channel for Harriet and subscribe to it. Um, it's a whole uh, number of voices that are appearing on that channel and um, I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful to hear all those perspectives. Definitely check it out as I said. And why wouldn't you after hearing um, an amazing interview like that? So yeah, that was Power Report for this um, episode. We hope to come back within the next two weeks with whatever is meaningful, whatever is worth your time, whatever is worth uh, really digging into. I will say one more thing before concluding this episode. Um, this is the first episode that I am doing um, that is being published that is happened since the um, untimely passing of leftist commentator, philosopher, and thinker Michael Brooks. Um, a lot of people knew Michael Brooks a lot better than I did, and there have been countless eulogies and um, remembrances of Michael Brooks, and so I'm definitely the latest in the last one, so I'm not going to belabor the point too much. Most people know that he was a really key figure in emphasizing a cosmopolitan left, a left that accepted all types of different uh, world cultures, that embraced a that represented a global uniting of workers um, to see their common interests and to work together to achieve uh, a better world. And another thing that folks in leftist independent media will appreciate about Michael Brooks was his desire and his drive to making sure that voices on the left were lifted up. I met Michael Brooks one time about a year and a half ago at a show he was doing and he treated me and any other fan who was there or any other like media person who was there all the same. Uh, all the people who knew Michael Brooks said that he was a really genuine person and uh, made every person he talked to feel like a celebrity, for, like feel like a really um, thoughtful, educated person from whom he could glean knowledge and insights off of. Um, he'd be the kind of person who would send me messages going, hey, check out this news article, I bet you'd have a good take on it. He was encouraging me to speak out and have my voice. And little did I know that he was doing that with 
a number of other people hoping to eventually uh, sort of cultivate this space on the left for a diverse set of speakers and thinkers to hash out the issues, to speak truth to power, and to analyze all of this constant news and the flow of information for the broader public. This was Michael Brooks's vision to build this robust ecosystem and this infrastructure. And I feel like now is no better time than any for that call to be answered by different uh, media entities, um, independent ones, bigger ones. This is what I feel the best contribution I can make in Michael Brooks's honor. And again, the best contribution I feel I can make for the listeners and the viewers for whom I care about very much. Uh, thank you for watching and listening to this episode of Power Report. Uh, we will be returning. Uh, be sure to check out all of the existing episodes that we have on YouTube or on as a podcast version. You can search Power Report wherever you get your podcasts or go to powerreport.world. We are also on Twitter. That is Power Report WRLD. Um, so we're just building that up. So <laughs> uh, be nice, uh, but go ahead and say hi. And we will talk to you soon. I need to get used to getting out of a Power Report episode because I can do audio face episodes really well, but Power Report's new. Thank you for dealing with Amateur Hour. Until the next episode, don't forget that the power is always within you. We snuff.